0: Tim and Sam's Podcast, Podcast, Podcast,
1: Podcast. to have a podcast which is really, really podcast. great, they serve on a plane Tim's God. luscious Fox and shiny make Making God. the very Best of God. mates So welcome God. to the Pod Sam, Sam has the TV news TV has Tim does reviews is really God. Political views. Well days are confused God. It's God. the podcast of choose
0: Analysis of like musical dialysis. <Verizon> welcome to the classical music pod. Klingons and non-Klingons alike. Sam, you've been talking to the founding members of Manchester Collective. What came up in your conversation?
2: Indeed, Raki and Adam have joined us in, I think, our first Cerberus multi-headed interview ever. Uh, And we had a nice chat about the inventive and unusual programming that they've been putting together since their founding in 2016. Uh, They tend to draw their inspiration from as wide a set of sources as possible and love collaborating, so they're right up our street and we're really pleased to be introducing them to as wide an audience as possible. Uh, other things that popped up include the challenges of naming new groups, the range of skills modern musicians need, and how to teach them those skills, as well as some thoughts on what's getting contemporary composers' brains whirring. We are back at the end for a little bit of chatter. Ye sure. interview, interview,
0: interview, 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 interview. interview.
2: So we've got Adam and Raki with us. I wonder if you guys could tell us a bit about your roles with Manchester Collective.
3: Great. (laughs) Lovely to meet you, Sam. Um, I am Raki Singh. I'm a violinist and I am music director of Manchester Collective, which means that together with Adam, I do the programming. And then when we're in the room with the musicians, I'm sort of directing the rehearsals and shaping the music.
2: And does that involve getting your arm out in a conducting shape or is it all very occasionally,
3: but it's mostly with a I feel a lot safer and and stronger with a violin under my chin somehow. But yeah, Adam is sometimes saying to me, you know, you could do a bit of conducting with the bow. It's like in, in desperate times I've I've resorted to that, but there might be more of that in the future, who knows?
1: I did see a violinist at a concert waving their scroll around absolutely wildly the other week. You know, I think we all find ways to kind of communicate what we need to do. Um, did it work? Uh, sort of, yeah. I, it's really hard, isn't it? I mean, you sort of, I think, you know, a lot of people who direct from the violin and, you know, you, I mean, even conductors that direct from the harpsichord, you come up against this kind of thing and you have to, I mean, ultimately it's just about communication, really. You just have to find the sort of technique that works. Anyway, hi, Sam. Um, My name's Adam (laughs) and I'm the um, chief exec and and other co-founder of the collective. With Rax, I suppose, we're we're sort of jointly responsible for the artistic uh, direction of the ensemble. And then, you know, I work with our our sort of team of staff to uh, sort of make all of that happen, really, to sort of um, put the pieces in in place so that we have, you know, audiences and people know about the shows and, uh, you know, everyone's in the right place at the right time.
2: Mm, surprisingly important with musicians involved, mm-hmm. isn't it, to actually communicate that stuff. Hi. Um, <laughs> but I've misread many a schedule in my time. Uh, if I've got the right end of the stick, Manchester Collective seems to be very much about collaboration and collaborating with other people. Can you guys remember the first time that you worked together?
1: Well, it would have been the first Manchester Collective show, really. I mean, yeah. this was quite a, a sort of... It was almost like a bit of an arranged marriage, really, because I sort of... Um, I had done some work with Raki's sister, Sim, who's also a really fine violinist that we work with. We'd sort of mentioned that it would be sort of a cool idea to put together this ensemble, the collective, and then Sim introduced Raki and I in 2016. And then over the course of sort of a dinner, you know, we basically decided that we were going to go ahead with this project. And then we just sort of started working together. So there wasn't much time to... Um, you know to kind of ease into it and dip your (coughs) toe in the water we just sort of threw ourselves into it really
3: yeah I suppose because I'm a bit older than Adam and I'd I'd been in a string professional string quartet for about nine years after college Mm. and stuff and and so I guess just having those extra years meant I could bring that experience and a lot of my colleagues and the people I knew to the ensemble so at least we weren't even though it We were starting from zero because it it didn't exist and no one knew who we were. At least people sort of, some people knew who I was and some people knew who Adam was. So it gave them something to trust, I suppose.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, and one thing I was thinking about with this is so many of your programmes are things that haven't existed before, right? Either combinations that haven't existed before or pieces of music that are yet to be written and selling promoters audiences even other performers to get involved does take that bit of trust doesn't it was that is that getting easier as you've established yourselves do you think
1: i think it is getting easier i mean yeah i think hopefully for most of the shows that we're putting on there's at least some sort of a central concept or a collaborator or a piece that is really compelling and that's what you know I guess the programmers tend to be interested in, and that's hopefully what the audiences are interested in as well. So, um, you know, we're playing a show tomorrow night, um, although it probably won't be tomorrow by the time this interview is called Heavy Metal, you know, and that is really about this sort of central conflict between a show that feels like it's about sort of really heavy, loud music, but then it's also a show that features a string quartet. And that's sort of an intriguing, (laughs) compelling thing. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, audiences are booking for that show is to sort of, there's sort of a question or a provocation there of like what what will this be like what will that program be like but but you know in the past we've played shows in like probably more shows in, we just completely self-produced and we just put them on. And now I guess we've built the trust with some of the sub-programmers and venues as well.
3: Yeah, I think it's not just with the programmers, it's with the audience. I I do remember us talking about this very clearly when we started, like what is our ethos? And I suppose if you want to make something about um, your your own feelings and style and your own taste, then Mm -hmm. you've got to be brave enough to do that. And we were like, okay, well, not everyone might like everything, but they'll learn to trust us and they'll like something. They like, But let's do it. Let's really do what we want and see who comes with us. And it feels like it's paid off.
2: Yeah, some people definitely seem to be coming with you.
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, The name, I just wanted to think for a moment about the fact it's got Manchester in it. Is that was that always important? Was that in every every draft?
3: I think so. I mean, it's quite hard choosing names, and we probably mm. had some really crap ones. But <laughs> I think they got quickly. I don't know. Somehow, it did feel important that it was Manchester because I don't know. There's so much stuff going on in London, and and mm. Manchester, such a I guess kind of recognizable place. I don't know. It just felt it just felt right. I think you kind of you sort of said that first
1: and Adam. We definitely wanted the
3: idea of collective as well.
1: It's always, it has (laughs) always been Manchester Collective. I mean, yeah, I think if, if, you know, depending on how like sort of conceptual, you know, you want to get, I guess I think there is something that is in the sort of the values and the sort of aesthetic and the spirit of Manchester and our work as well, which is you know, like authenticity is really important to Max that like something is mm. that there's like a genuine connection and it's not, you know, you don't get kind of airs and graces and, mm. you know, you, like, it's, like it's, you know, uh, in many ways, I think it's a much more sort of democratic city than London. Um, the the sort of you know the sort of extreme divides of like inequality are maybe like less extremely pronounced in in the <clears> north <throat> like mm-hmm. the, you know f- this project for us was always about access as well and that um it would be sort of music for people for kind of anyone that wanted to come and have a have an intense experience that they could come along and you didn't need to know about John Cage <laughs> or you didn't need to know about you know Johannes Brahms or whatever it is mm-hmm. um so yeah, I don't know. It feels
3: very Welsh actually, because I'm I was i bo- I'm born in Wales and my parents still live there. Um, but those values feel very Welsh. So maybe should it be the Manchester Welsh collective.
2: <laughs> well, keep, you could do little <laughs> franchises, couldn't you? You could keep yeah. it standing. Um and and the collective. Uh an interesting second word to have. It's not orchestra. Who are the people that you've collected? Because they're not all instrumentalists, am I right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we don't have a fixed membership, you know, which I think is actually a really important Mm -hmm. ingredient in the DNA of the group because it means that, you know, we can produce work across a season that is really sort of wildly diverse. And so Mm -hmm. even within the musical world, you know, we collaborate with, you know, classical players, but with, you know, folk artists, but with kind of world musicians, but with producers of electronic music, you know, so very kind of different sorts of artists and then you know we've worked with directors and choreographers and photographers and dancers and filmmakers and chefs of all sorts um and you know music is always at the heart of all of those projects so it's not that Mm. you know we're going to form the magic kind of squash club but um (laughs) but it, it is I don't know I think it's really liberating to I don't know I mean Rex how does it feel for you being able to be inspired by some of these other people. I mean, it's different, right? Yeah, it's
3: amazing. And I suppose even I really, I was really um, touched by when you would talk to the management team and, and sort of point out to them, like, you are the collective, we are all the collective. It's not a case of having artists and management it's like Mm. we all try and work together as much as possible I mean you know everybody's got their separate jobs to do but there is a lot of sort of discussion and it's important that either side feels kind of part of the other or at least can to know what they're doing so it's possible to understand I think in many music organizations the management and the and the artists get very separated and then actually Mm. that a lot of frictions can start to build up and like just like a lack of empathy mm. and I think keeping that openness is is crucial actually as especially as we grow so we all sort of understand the jobs that people are doing you know it's interesting sometimes we go places or or we might have some guest people who, who maybe don't quite get the culture that we're <laughs> that we've created and and maybe they might speak down to our management in some shape or form. And yeah. that's really not cool. We don't like that at all.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no.
3: exactly. It sort of really shows their true colours in some ways. If they think people people in the room are doing a lesser job than them, then they've kind of got it a bit wrong.
2: Yeah. Hey, well, that's I mean, yeah, I think that's a really fantastic approach. Yeah. I wondered how you set about collecting, particularly the non-musical people. So I'm thinking of the chef Sam Buckley that you mentioned. And um, so, do you start with we've met Sam, he's amazing, let's do something with him, or do you think we want to do something with food? Let's go looking for some culinary stuff. Does it? How, what's the process of putting it together like?
3: I think it's more through an instinct of loving what someone does. And then maybe a secondary, what that thing actually is. Like, I remember the first time I saw Black, an Instagram video of Black Ain. I was completely blown away. And obviously it's a style that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, classical music. Um, but I was just sort of really struck by his, um, his power, his artistic power. And then that's what's intriguing. Like, how, are we able to create something together? We're creators. Mm. And we're in the medium of music. doesn't mean we just have to say music. Like, I don't know expression is expression and and if you find ways of melding different types of expression you've got a chance of finding that third thing
2: yeah and I suppose if you're already recognizing that everybody in the room whether they are doing the videography or they are helping logistics where everyone is performing everyone is bringing their stuff then it, it isn't such a big leap to think hey well there's someone else doing something else that we like maybe we can connect with that as well
3: yeah yeah connection that's a good word
1: yeah exactly that's what i was going to say i think we're both quite obsessed really with this idea of kind of connection and Mm. you know and that i mean you know sam as an example i mean i think that's where it comes from is that you know we both i mean it was funny with sam like raki and i both met him on completely separate occasions we never met him together and we both came away really strongly feeling like oh my god this is like a really special man the work that he's doing is amazing it's very very particular it was the same with black cane. I mean, Rex found, um, Tom sort of online and then, you know, sent some stuff over and, you know, within like four seconds, you're just like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like <laughs> we've got to, you know, sort of, what can we, what can we kind of hatch to sort of collaborate with this artist? Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just sort of know, and it is when, um, you know, when it feels like, cause there's a lot of work, I think that we all see that's just a bit sort of blah you know and it just kind of washes over you and doesn't really make any impact so when something kind of cuts through all of those kind of fatty layers and kind of touches a nerve Mm. um you know that's really special and I think that's what we sort of try and do for our audiences as well basically is just sort of give them that experience where you've sort of touched a live wire
3: yeah yeah a lot of a lot of our decision making is done primarily through instinct and then the the intellect kind of follows afterwards and try and hones the instinct, basically, rather than trying to. If something looks good on paper, it doesn't mean it actually will feel good. Whereas if you follow a feeling, then you're more likely to get to that stronger place that Adam was
1: talking about. That's it is amazing how many programmers you sort of listen to concert programs and you're like, you've never actually listened through this program, have you? You know, <laughs> it's just like you've got a piece, you know, you need like a 13-minute that like you know I need something by a woman that's like between 12 and 15 minutes and then you just like slap it down on a piece of paper you know like yeah I don't know it's it is interesting and I I think programming especially in the orchestral world it has been really sort of intellectualized and we've gotten away from you know like an aesthetic like musicology of programming I guess like it's much less about what work sounds like and a lot more about the sort of constituent parts of musical work, like how it's written or when it was written or who it was written by, or like the sort of, you know, the sort of how mm. it works. But actually the audience doesn't get any of that anyway. All they get to do is listen. And so, I mean, what, what that means effectively is that, you know, in, in many of our shows, you get pieces that on paper look like they're not connected. And then when you are there in the room and you're listening through, it sort of feels like you're on one journey um, and all of those different works kind of work together.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting point about the the sort of sound experience of actually sitting there, rather than reading a program and going, "Oh, well, this person was that person's pupil," or you know, "Oh, and the, well, of course they were working." At this, you know, they're sure, great. But the thing we do is sit down and listen to the music, or we stand and listen to the music, or we put it in our head, whatever it is. It's a it's time travel, isn't it?
3: I yeah. think for what it's worth, like we often. Or I certainly find myself thinking or feeling flavors when we build our programs like there's definitely I mean it's often it's about textures or sweet and sour the variety of that or Mm. yeah sometimes it definitely feels like our programs can be a kind of tasting menu but that's just like my personal the way that my personal thoughts and feelings go it's never something like Right, now we're going to create a tasting menu.
2: (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah. And let's put a pudding at this bit. No, no, no. Exactly. I should say that there are some more dates coming up for that that people can book in the new year. Is that right?
1: Yes, we have a show called Neon that we'll be playing at Where the Light Gets In and it's on the 22nd of May in Stockport.
0: (laughs)
2: I have so far only enjoyed you guys through screens. I mean, enjoying you through a screen this morning, of course, but uh, also listening and and watching what you've put out onto the internet. And Ah. um, my my first moment before I knew who you were, actually, was uh, a clip of Sirocco and I was doing my day of peripatetic teaching and was just scrolling on Twitter waiting for a pupil to arrive, and this, you know, sound explosion hit me. And I was like, wow, and I just stood there in a corridor for whatever it was, seven minutes, until (laughs) someone turned up to get taught how to sing. And it was just, that's the musical mainline to my brain, that sound. And that's with cellist Abel Selaoko. How am I saying that right? Selaoko? Selaochwe. Okay, so I wasn't even close. How did you guys first meet him and what's working with him like?
1: Uh, well, I, um, I, so I used to be a cellist in a previous life and oh. Abel was in my cello class in like 2012. So we sort of studied together and yeah, I, I guess, you know, mm. in many ways his sort of work, I mean, you know, it's sort of incredibly inspiring musician doing amazing work and, and he's one of our longest sort of time collaborators with the collective. Yeah, his work has sort of really blossomed in a way in the time that he's been able to set his own musical boundaries or rather mm. remove any musical boundaries that might have been in place. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean this the first version of Soroka I think happened in 2018 and then the idea really was to build a show which was about um folk music and and music that had been influenced by folk traditions across the world so from south africa from mali from the ivory coast and then from scandinavia and from the celtic countries and finding kind of common threads Mm. running through that music and then also drawing parallels with 20th century classical repertoire um stravinsky you know and, and often we found that actually it was the rhythms and the grooves of those works that were the common threads that kind of ran through. So again, you know, you could do weird stuff like, you know, go from a sort of, you know, Stravinsky string quartet kind of concertino, uh, you know, straight into like a South African kind of traditional, um, you know, kind of drum rhythm or something. And your ears would sort of take it, you know. Mm, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, we also found the links between sort of Haydn and the, um, the sort of hymnal singing from South Africa, which was in... The missionaries. Missionaries coming down from Europe.
1: Yeah. So we,
3: we did actually go from a Haydn string quartet into a South African hymn, which worked really well. And actually there was Purcell in that first, in the first mm. tour as well. So yeah, it was nice to find these links. Again, maybe. things that maybe on paper you think, oh, but actually in the room, they really worked.
2: Yeah. And to a player, you can say, if you are really good at playing Stravinsky, trust me, you're going to be great at this rhythm. Like it's, it's you know, the <laughs> it's going to be in your bones. It's just putting it in a different way. Is the musical process totally notated? Uh, it sounds quite improvisatory to listen to a lot of the music with him.
3: Yeah I mean that was certainly the first time we did it it was really sort of strain on the brain because we were a bit pushed for time as well because of travel plans getting um, messed up and stuff so we were trying to learn things by ear very quickly right. and I think it's easier for us to play stuff from notation in a quick way but to actually learn by ear was quite sort of cranking the old brain up <laughs> um, but it was, it was good and then of course the more you do it the more you get used to it and I mean I've always sort of been able to learn stuff by ear but never really followed that, um, followed it that, that much so it's really nice mm. to be exercising that part of our brain and it's actually it's become more part of our practice. We try and do it more often not just with Abel in his projects but we've sort of I, I did some with Chet's and the Northern students I taught them a Bulgarian tune by ear. Mm. Which was in I think fifteen sixteen, so already they're kind of it's a bit of a wonky four um, four, and it's just it's just good practice, and you're you're developing as a musician and as a person then as well. It's you never get to a stage where you just stop learning.
1: Mm. Hopefully not. I, I think I often classical musicians are kind of obsessed with accuracy, you know, because it's what we're taught at conservatoires is just you know play the dots play the score like what did the composer write da, 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 da. and so mm. you know with Soroka when we ended up touring it the following year I think the whole second half of the show we sort of did from memory and you know and and with this kind of Bulgarian stuff that Ray was talking about as well I mean when you're teaching by year and when you're performing from memory you're you're thinking about the notes in a different way you know you're not sort of you're not just trying to match what you see on a piece of paper but actually there's more freedom in there i think to find the music behind mm. the notes mm. um and so you know with, with with sirocco then it is possible that there are like you know kind of big sections of kind of improvised solos or improvised sort of passages and then you know you sort of come together you know for these kind of pylons these sort of structural moments that keep the whole thing from just becoming very formless but yeah, it's quite a different way for classical musicians to work, actually. And um, yeah, it it's, is it's funny sometimes when fun. we
3: come when we come back to the tunes, um, we end up reminding Abel how it goes rather than reminding. <laughs> <laughs> I think because it's always so fluid with him, and he can, you know, when he's playing with Chesaba, his band, he they can just change things on a whim. But when it's four people, sort of, you know, relearning a tune it's just like you can't just change the the repetitions <laughs> like that, and we'll know, you know.
2: Yeah. Uh, and you've got a project coming up with him next year called The Oracle. Do you know what shape that will be yet or is it all yet to be determined?
1: No, we know, we, know, we do know about it now, which is nice <laughs> for us because it's coming up pretty soon. <laughs> it's um, yeah. So it's, it's a string ensemble project. And then we'll have a ball and, um, and electric bass African percussion and uh, yeah, I think it's sort of looking like one half of that show is sort of looking back to the past, um, at, you know, the connections that, uh, you know, this music from from South Africa, really, that we've sort of, or South African influence music that we've been exploring, how that connects to, you know, early Baroque music, you know, Ramo, like what that looks like. Wow. And then the second half has a bit of a focus on the future, a sort of eye on, on kind of Afrofuturism and, and again, like uh, sort of African inflected music, but, you know, paired with music by kind of Mika Levy or Oliver Leith and, and finding these sort of um, sort of space age harmonies and textures. And uh, there's a big set of new work that Abel's written for the show, which will be very exciting. And um, yeah, it'll be our, our um, Queen Elizabeth Hall debut at the South Bank Centre, which will be lots of fun.
0: Hey Sam, I've set up a coffee donation page for the podcast.
2: What is a coffee donation
0: page, Tim? It's like Patreon, in that it allows people to financially support creative projects they enjoy.
2: If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us like a, tasty a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If like
0: to buy us a coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description.
2: And you guys talking about that teaching of music and sharing it, how you communicate it, is that all feeding into your winter residency for string players and that sort of pedagogy brain whirring?
3: Yeah, very much. I think over the past few years, I've had the opportunity to go into some of the conservatoires, which has been great. And um, the students are often very, you know, interested and willing and keen. But I think... Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're a bit overstretched or given too many things to do or folks. So they, this, there might be a sort of lack of clarity or focus. So it got us thinking about, actually, if we were to design our own academic thing, I guess not academic, it's practical, isn't it? What are the things we, we require our musicians to be good at and mm-hmm. then sort of build a, um, an education Program around it, but also not just for the students, also for professionals, like professional development. That's the thing; we never stop learning. There's plenty of things I feel like I'm not very good at, and I want to get better at. And it's okay to to feel like that. I think it's good to admit that as
2: well yeah. to people.
3: We don't have to be these perfect things.
2: Yes, yeah, straight off the assembly line, aged yeah, twenty one. I've I've completed everything, and I mean the list of things that your students are going to do is maybe a little bit wider than some string courses. You've got percussion, choral singing, yoga, and public speaking.
3: Well, it's not just the students that be doing that. Everyone's in it together in this.
1: Oh, cool. So
3: we're all learning from each other. And I'm yeah. sure they'll build things that we'll learn from the students as well.
1: Yeah, so it's not, it's not the it's not <laughs> really so much that our players are teaching the students. It is that it's this joint, larger group. And, mm. I mean, these are the skills that, you know, musicians in the 21st century need to have, you know. I mean... There are, there are very, very few musicians who are kind of graduating today who will go on to orchestral positions in the future. You know, there are very few of those jobs for everyone that isn't in a full-time orchestral job. You know, this kind of world is changing and people need to be able to work in very, very different ways. I mean, you know, look at the most successful, you know, concerts that are sort of happening around the country, like Aurora's memorizing symphonies willy-nilly. I mean, that's not something that we ever did at Conservatoire, you know, there are skills you know, dramatic skills, theatre skills, you know, different musical approaches, collaborations, you know, presenting about music from stage. I think these are, I mean, you know, this. it's not a gimmick. It's that when people come to work with us, these are the skills that we need them to have. Mm. And so, you know, we're sort of hoping to do our little bit and, and be sort of training up sort of a, a, a kind of new generation of players, I guess.
3: I think it's worth mentioning as well, it's not, you know, it's not sort of, that's not the whole focus. Obviously people need to be able to play their instruments. So I mm. suppose that's where during the residency, the more experienced professionals can help with technical knowledge. And, you know, that all kind of goes, almost goes without saying, because if you can't play your instrument, it doesn't matter if you're good at public speaking, if you start, you know, you've got to be able to do it all basically.
2: Yeah. And fill in the gaps, I suppose, isn't it? Maybe someone's an excellent solo musician here are the ensemble skills here's the, yeah.
3: that
2: sort of even us all out it sounds really it's interesting. just
3: a kind of a more of a holistic approach because being a musician isn't just like you putting a bow across the string or whatever it's sort of i, I suppose it's more about being an artist and yeah mm. rather than being an instrumentalist
2: preach i'm there <laughs> <laughs> just- It sounds really good. I sent it to all my string player friends. I don't know if any of them applied. Hopefully they did. Well, to be
3: honest, we wish we could have, you know, given twice as many spaces as we had. You know, this is the first time we're trying it. And yeah, it was really hard to, uh, to award the the places because we kind of wanted to take everyone really. Um, But we're, you know, this is our first exploration into this and depending on how it goes, we'll see how we can expand it or develop it. Cool.
2: And, I mean, it's been a uh, 12 months or so with quite a lot of firsts for you guys in, I think, hasn't it? We've had first audio recording, first audio-visual recording, first prom, first Wigmore Hall, things like that. Uh, it, has it felt like massive rapid expansion, growing pains? Ah, or have you been able to reflect on it? Has it? Have you felt ready for this big kaboom moment?
3: I don't know. For me, it was almost when... It's since September, I think, when everything has kind of gone back to normal after we'd done all of our first stuff, because all of that felt quite natural really, because artistically we've been sort of building up and preparing for that stuff for ages. So it didn't feel, you know, unreachable Mm. or, or, um, yeah, that we couldn't manage it. But when everybody was sort of slammed into full speed ahead in September, it was like, ah, (laughs) not used to this pace.
2: It's yes, putting all the normal things back in was the problem, wasn't it? It mm. wasn't the one-off moments in lockdown. Those are kind of manageable. It was the yeah. like, oh, and now you've also got to remember to get over
1: there and do that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Get in a van, go to Bristol, play a show, <laughs> yeah. you know, back up to Manchester. Yeah, yeah. it's the touring stuff, I think. And, and you know, I think there are a lot of artists who are sort of struggling with this at the moment of, like, how to retain those moments of, like, reflection and quiet preparation and being able to sort of find the space in you know in the middle of sort of a busy touring schedule so I think that's probably an eternal struggle really yes
2: yeah yeah moments of input and output I think yeah. do you know uh, Armando Iannucci the comedy writer like he I, I read that he takes six months off and then six months on which sounds very appealing and all you've got to do is write several massively successful shows and then you can do that so. yeah right <laughs> come on guys. Last night I went to the opera mainly to reassure myself that we can still come up with something more sophisticated than Mike Oldfield or a tit of cress. Um, new- so this month is heavy metal month, um, and we touched on it a little bit, Adam, with the the juxtaposition of the strings and the the heavier music. I've read this word. Where is it? Let me find it. The tube screamer. Ibanez tube screamer. Yeah. What is it? Is it? <laughs> so, it sounds terrifying.
1: So the so Ibanez is a manufacturer of guitar pedals and oh. um, and the Tube Screamer is like, it's sort of an iconic, it's actually an overdrive pedal, I think, from the 70s, I believe. Mm. That one needs to be fact-checked. So sorry, listeners, if that's mm. completely wrong, I'm just a cellist. <laughs> um, but basically what this means is that in this particular work by Michael Gordon called Industry, it's a work for solo cello and the sort of feed from the microphone on the cello is a run through this pedal mm. and basically what happens is that over the 10 minute piece which starts off as this really beautiful kind of lyrical double stoppy um sort of it's almost like a sort of serenade or something um the amount of distortion sort of slowly kind of creeps in and at the beginning you you're not even sure what you're hearing. It just sounds like sort of some kind of weird sort of audio quirk, like a fuzz sort of on the horizon. And it sort of builds and builds and builds. And by the end of the piece, you know, the audience is kind of in this huge sort of wall of sound. Mm. The composer describes it as it being like there's a a hundred foot cello made of steel hanging in the air above the audience, um, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's certainly, it's not, um, It's not the Bach, Jim Edge cello suite, that's
3: for sure. I just had an image. Maybe it's like the Angel of the North playing the cello.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I bet that feels like, you know, the old expression of a a frog being slowly boiled. Yeah, uh, it's exactly that. And you sort of, again, music that you feel, that sounds exactly like it. I mean, that's probably why you put it down, right? Because it's (laughs) it's up your street. Um, Very visceral. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that I thought that you guys might be well-placed to tell us all about is um, the kind of ideas that are animating all these living composers that you're working with, because there's a host of them and they seem to come from all over the world and every musical background and every wonderful, fresh idea is represented there. Are there any trends, things that are bubbling away across the different composers that you're working with?
3: I mean they they do vary a lot like you've observed, but I suppose I'm noticing though there's a certain exploration of this whole spectrum of sound, so mm. I think due to technology and sort of electronics music tech that the way you can observe and even create sound is very very different and for example, like with ed finnis it's it's very spectral in many many ways, and we explore white noise as well as pitch and I suppose you know the the spectral composed Haas and all of that, they've been doing it for years, but it's interesting when when things sort of cross over. Mm. Um, yeah, so I suppose with Ed, it's like I find his harmonies is quite um, like beautifully pop, but then like the attitude to sound is very spectral and spatial, as well as being very lyrical. So it's mm. I feel like it's it's everything between the gaps is being explored more
1: like the spaces also,
3: between the lines.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think also, and I, mean, I think this applies to Ed as well, is that there are certainly a number of artists that we're working with who are thinking about the natural world in various forms, you know, kind of perceptions of, of you know, light or nature or sort of water or climate or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, we've got a number of commissions coming up that we haven't sort of spoken about yet that... Uh, that are sort of explicitly, or or the works of those composers are explicitly about, about, you know, the kind of natural world, actually. And I don't know, it feels like there are always going to be composers who kind of shut themselves in a studio and they just want to, like, make the work that they want to make in as pure a way as possible. And then there are always going to be artists who are really influenced by the big issues of the day and there's no Mm -hmm. getting away from the fact that, you know, we're in a sort of emergency and that there are artists who are really thinking about Not not necessarily about climate change, but certainly about the natural world.
3: I mean, even actually heavy metal, uh, the two commissions in this um, this concert are so different. We've got Ben, who just feels like it's so contemporary and so engaged with like TikTok and
1: um, (laughs)
3: like social media mediums. Um, And it's so it plays so brilliantly with those ideas. And he's so talented. And then I know that Seb was reading about female mystics in the like 10th century about, you know, as inspiration from his speech. But then also he was seeing all of this um, lineage uh, about sort of the the patriarchy and the way that women were treated back then and so many sort of parallels with now. And, you know, it was really fascinating.
2: Yeah. Wow. So it turns out. There are lots of ideas going on with composers. Oh, so it's yeah. a bit of an unfair question. It's a bit of a big one. Like, hey, just,
3: just tell me what's going on.
2: But I just I thought you guys have got this... You sort of transgress boundaries in lots of ways. You know, you sort of move between these spaces and it's just interesting to get the report card back. And you are often going between these very established and prestigious spaces, you know, Wigmore Hall, great, but then also venues that are maybe never... have never hosted a concert before or a you know, music event before... And I think often we hear about the amazing things that the place that's never hosted it before brings, and you're like, oh, yeah, being in that space is wonderful. Going back to the conventional spaces, is there anything where you realise, oh, actually, it is really nice. This this part of a conventional concert is a a really positive yeah, aspect. My
3: God, the acoustics. <laughs> <laughs> Much like, but I think doing both means that when we come back into the conventional spaces we find a way of owning them a little bit more. We're less intimidated by the space. Because I remember Mm. with my string quartet, the first time we played in Wigmore Hall, it was so so kind of scary because it's this kind of beacon, like, oh my God, you know, after five years, we've managed to play in Wigmore Hall. And then of course you don't play your best if you have that amount of pressure on you. So when we returned, I was like, okay, I've been here. I know this space, like we're here because Mm. they want us to be here. Um, And you give a better performance then I think. Uh,
2: restaurants come with less emotional baggage for musicians, I suppose, don't they? (laughs) Less Um, trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you about one piece that I just in researching this, had really enjoyed looking at. And I think it's from November, your November concerts, the Coin-Op Automata by Lawrence Osborne. Could you tell us a little bit about what what did you feel like you had to emphasise in that piece to make it a successful performance? You know, what what lifts it from we're playing it right to we're playing the feeling, we're playing the music? It's a good um, question.
3: Yeah, I mean, again, like working with Lawrence, we knew where, what his inspiration was, this kind of um, quirky coin operated machine places in Covent Garden where it's, you know, yes. they're full of characters. It's almost like sort of being in the circus or something. So, yeah. the, you know, slightly surreal. And then I think, cause his score is very detailed and pretty complex actually. Definitely we had to engage the maths part of the brain, but if you just stop at the maths, then you haven't done your job. So it's sort of then interpreting, yeah. reinterpreting what that means and what it is and what it means to you. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, so maybe this is kind of like, um, this is the wooden bird or, and yeah, it's just using your imagination and in, in whatever shape or form that takes, I think.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's very easy with, um, you know, it's very easy with contemporary music to be so focused on playing the dots. And, and again, you know, this accuracy, especially when the work is complex and Lawrence's work is really complex. And And in a way, it's about in the same way that voicing is really important in any kind of performance, but, you know, you sort of think about quartet playing or or sort of solo piano work, you know, you have to bring out these lines that matter. Mm. I think often we lose that, actually, when it comes to contemporary music, especially complex contemporary music. You just get this sort of onslaught of notes. And and Lawrence is actually really good at voicing. You know, you always sort of know what the important material is. Mm. And so no matter how, you know, no matter how frenzied or or complicated the work is as you're listening to it there's material that is familiar or there are melodies or there are moments of harmony that kind of pop out
3: yeah i do remember um like quite early in the day adam was saying to me you know like people would spend two years working on Beethoven string quartets but they never spend the same amount of time or effort working on contemporary music yeah why not (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah and it doesn't necessarily get the shelf life either does it it has that one performance or one Mm. little run and then it's sort of and that was done and it's really nice if these things can keep resurfacing and you know come back to them later in life well hopefully our i'll put a link to the uh, video for that in the description because i think everyone will enjoy that um because it's been a really it's been a really nice feeling I've, I've I've had a really nice feeling chatting to you, so um, I can totally understand why the collaborative approach works for you. I'm always a little bit worried with um, interviews with like you guys look so cool on your websites. Have you, <laughs> have you noticed that?
3: We're like, not we're not
2: cool. <laughs> like everyone's sort of like, yeah, all the all the it's just all done so beautifully, and then. Um, you actually yeah, smile and it's really nice. Uh, you're reassuring lovely people. So <laughs> thanks very much. <laughs> anyway, um, I hope you have a good rest of the day and I'll catch you soon.
1: Thanks very much, Great. Sam. Uh, yeah, We'll Bye. see you soon.
0: Very interesting, Sam. Thank you very much for talking to Racky and Adam, who clearly are as nice as they are cool. I meant it. I actually do find people's incredibly beautiful press
2: photos where they look sideways and edgy um, a little bit intimidating. And it was very nice
0: to find out that they're such jolly folks. Mm -hmm. Hey, let's... Zoom in on a few points that were particularly salient. Adam spoke about programming, especially in the orchestral world. He said that it's been intellectualised, it's much less about what work sounds like, and much more about the constituent parts. Yes. I mean, I wondered what you thought about that because... You see
2: so many programmes in your job writing programme notes, right? You will see the combination of pieces Mm -hmm. many more times than you will hear them, perhaps. And Yes. I just wondered what, yeah,
0: does that ring true for you? It does, actually. I think what Adam said is accurate, but it's perhaps maybe a little unfair comparison with an institution like the Proms, because they have so many different people, groups of people that they're trying to please when they're putting, t- I mean, not only did the, the proms themselves have to please a conductor in an orchestra that want to put several mm. pieces together, um, which in itself is from the sounds of it very difficult, but they also have to please, uh, several different sets of audiences, like the, the punters that come, most people that go to the proms only go once in a season, yeah, the vast majority, but they, they also have to please the hardcore proms that go every every single one right uh, they have to put together a program that brings in enough to sell tickets to make it viable but is also interesting enough for the critics that come yeah and, and it's got to it. fit in a tv
2: slot it's exactly. got to fit in a radio broadcast
0: yeah so i wonder if a collective such as the manchester collective have more artistic freedom because there aren't so many constraints
2: yeah i absolutely agree with you and i thought it was interesting to hear them using that impulse to kick away from something and Mm -hmm. say well this isn't what we want to do we want to do music that is all about the listening and the that um as he described it musical aesthetic experience Mm -hmm. and uh even if that thing that you're kicking against doesn't truly exist even if you manufacture it slightly it can be a hugely galvanizing effect Mm -hmm. to be uh to work out what you want to do Mm -hmm. is to work out what you
0: don't want to do and just exactly. do the opposite. Exactly. Adam also spoke about classical musicians being obsessed with accuracy because it's oh, what they're taught yes. at conservatoires, which really rung true. I-, I wonder if there's well, he's Australian, so maybe this isn't fair, but in the UK I the UK conservatoire. In, you attended a UK conservatoire. I think there's some kind of weird national pride about our ability to sight read. I don't know if that's something that you get and I yeah. think I think manifested in the example of the LSO playing this, all the Star Wars soundtracks.
2: Yeah, that film, like, red lights on. Yeah. Straight away. Exactly. No run-throughs. Just, like, get it right first time. It's almost masochistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone like Valery Gergiev got away with conducting the LSO, I think, because they loved the fact that you walked in at the last minute, or maybe they didn't, but enough of them did, mm-hmm. uh, because it made it into a stressful situation, and mm-hmm. you maybe you make diamonds under stress, right? but
0: maybe also on cracks and has to be on Prozac. Mm. Those who've been watching Get Back, the Beatles documentary, will <laughs> understand that there was a fair bit of that going. What was it that Paul McCartney said? We're at our best when our backs are up, up against the wall. And I think there is an element of truth in that. I wonder if that's another manifestation of the British last-minute attitude.
2: Yeah, maybe you're at your best when you've just carefully thought
0: about it. <laughs> I know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Racky said a couple of very interesting things as well. Uh well, firstly, she, she kind of agreed with you about uh, trends in classical composition, mm-hmm. but also disagreed. And, and I think actually your question was fair, that though obviously there are wildly different inspirations from, every, from one composition to the next. If you zoom out... Over the past twenty years, for example, you can mm. see trends. I mean, for example, yeah. in the nineties, if you'd written a piece of tonal music, then you would have been ostracized, I, or you'd be you'd be pigeonholed, perhaps.
2: Yes, you'd be writing for a certain kind of concert or a certain maybe more yeah. TV and film actually. Yes, but it's now contemporary, uh, absolutely contemporary music at the bleeding edge of new can be totally tonal. Yes, which is new. But I. Uh, I think if I was going to reframe that question, and think, uh, having thought about it afterwards, there's lots of stuff that animates composers around the music, and that's some of the stuff that Adam was talking about with climate, or maybe political things, or elements of people's personal identity that can um, inspire creativity. But I wanted to know a little bit more about what's happening within the music. So Mm. minimalism, for instance, you can hear minimalism. And that is a interesting musical trend of people repeating patterns, et cetera, and using small amounts of material in certain processes or a tonality, right? Those are within the music rather than outside the music, mm-hmm. inspiring. And um, I just want to know what the next thing is. And I don't know if there is a consistent trend happening of things within the music yet. But, uh, yeah, just always trying to see around the corner, I think. mm mm-hmm. One thing that rattled around my head afterwards was... Simon rattled. It's Simon rattled around my head. Sir Simon rattled, actually. hope he gets better. He's got COVID at the moment. Was Adam mentioning that artists trying to hold on to some of the positives from COVID and the lockdown of that time to work on oneself and one's own practice. And I think even if your work on yourself was learning how to fix your bike or bake a sourdough, people enjoyed a little bit of that inward self-development perhaps Mm. and not self-development glossed with capitalism where you're actually just getting better at your job but maybe just working on who you are and trying to be more of whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Um, I've certainly lost that little bit of extra time as the world has happened again and suddenly you're commuting again or you're dashing off around the country and uh, maybe we should all be having a four-day week and working on working on ourselves a little bit yeah it's something it's finding that glimmer of light in a dark
0: time yes I think. in self-isolation there's no conversation my one consolation model transportation
1: i have a thing where i make models of buses